All right, the youth can be dismissed. Follow the Sunday school crew out behind you. The rest of us, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair somewhere within reach. You might have to look around a little bit. Definitely grab one so you can follow along uh, as we continue in our time of worship. And a welcome to all of you. Good to have you, especially if you're newer. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, for our time of worship here at Cornerstone. We, uh, because uh, it's our attempt here to not worship ourselves, uh, but to worship God, we take this time really as we continue in worship to hear from God as we just sang from his word. Uh, so we don't study our own words, uh, we study the word of God from the 66 books of scripture. And we're in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, attempting, uh, as we do here, to take God's word seriously. Uh, It is food for the soul. Man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And uh, we do hear what's called expository preaching, if you're newer, which uh, means that we take a whole book of the Bible and we work through it verse by verse, uh, letting the Holy Spirit, who inspired the scriptures, speak from his word. And so we're uh, in the thick of a wonderful section of Romans, chapter 8, finish, having finished verses 5 through 8. Last week, we'll be in verses 9 through 11, kind of the next logical section this morning. The title of the message of our study is The Transformation by the Holy Spirit, or The Transformation that the Holy Spirit accomplishes. Well, it was 234 years ago today. Uh, September 24th, 1789, that a significant transformation occurred in our nation uh, after the colonies had uh, won uh, the, the war. A few years later, uh, there was this day, 234 years ago, the passing of the 17, it was called the 1789 Judiciary Act, Judiciary Act. And of course, this, you historians know, established the, what we know now as the Supreme Court of the United States. We did not have that until that point. And so, good old George Washington, who was president at that time, as presidents do now, he nominated five associate justices and one chief justice. That was John Jay, the chief justice at the time. And of course, this was a a major moment of transformation uh, in our nation because, as you know, the the Supreme Court is really the highest court of the land. Uh, And it would go on to, as it does today, uh, deal with extremely important cases. And this court, the Supreme Court, has highest jurisdiction over all other courts, uh, in theory, in the United States. But now this was, our nation was transformed because it ensured there was the supreme body charged with taking the Constitution, properly interpreting it, and properly applying it to a myriad of cases, some being quite difficult. And in our passage this morning, we also see something of the issue of a transformation, a landmark work of transformation, not in a nation but in individual people. The, more specifically, the individual believer who, as we heard from Cole, puts their faith in Jesus Christ. 
Romans 8 is talking a lot about this transformation that God accomplishes. This is not a transformation where someone wakes up one day and says, golly, you know, I, I want to I behave differently and, you know, I want to maybe turn the moral wrench in my life and button some things down. It's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a far greater transformation, a transformation that is accomplished by the Holy Spirit in the individual believer who puts faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've you ever heard of the Holy Spirit, you're like, what is that? We'll talk about that in a moment. So our Lord, in this next passage, this passage is given to us so that whether you're not in Christ yet or you're newer in Christ or you're a veteran in Christ, whatever it might be, we would, we would learn or be reminded of some critical truths about the Holy Spirit, a topic surrounding which there's, there's kind of been a lot of confusion in Christianity, especially in the last 122 years or so. We'll see in this text, so what happens when you put faith in Christ? Like, what does the Holy Spirit do? Right? Putting faith in Christ is not the end of the matter, but it's just the beginning. It's not, well, I have this, you know, heavenly fire insurance now that I can shove in the drawer and just go about my jolly old way. That no, the Holy Spirit begins a work in you. He indwells you. You, you have like a new, a new power in your life. You have a new presence in your life. You have a new hope in your life. He is with you now. You're not your own. And you also have a really good new future that he will accomplish. So with that, follow along as I read in our text. I'm going to start in uh, verse 1 of Romans 8, and I'll read through verse 11. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. God's inerrant, inspired, authoritative word reads, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a great text. We studied that verse alone a couple weeks ago. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law, speaking of God's commandments, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Remember, the flesh refers to that fallen, that corruption in us, sin, remaining sin. Verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it's, it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the reading of God's word. Well, God gave the book of Romans to us about the middle of the first century through the pen of the apostle Paul. Uh, Many historians, theologians, I should say, over the years have considered this the most important book of the 66 books in the Bible, and rightly so, because it, it shows for us, it's like a huge diamond just turning for us, showing us all the glory of the most important message that has ever landed on this planet and ever will, and that is the good news of what we celebrated with Cole, not the good news of Cole, as great as you are, Cole, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God the Father, motivated by his love, despite the sinfulness of the human race, sent his own son to come down, live the perfect life according to the law that we never could, and he went to the cross to be condemned for our sin so that through faith in him and all who put their trust in him would hear those words we read in verse 1, that great anthem, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can only hear and know that in truth if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ and surrendered to him. But of course, that's not the end of the matter. That is the beginning. Romans 8 is now getting into some finer details, some important technicalities about so what now. And as such, Romans 8 is kind of a, it's like a mini-series on the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that once you put faith in Christ, this Holy Spirit, he comes to dwell in your heart. So what about that? What, what does that mean? What does that look like? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. Now, God is one God, the scriptures teach us, but many passages like Matthew 28, 19, uh, even this passage, passage this morning, teach that God is three persons but one God. How that all works out, we don't really know. It's not a contradiction because it's not saying there are three gods and one God. Three persons in the one God. Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Hence the term tri. However, one God, yun, triune or trinity. That's where we get that term. This is the true and the only God. You cannot wrap around your mind around him, of course, because he's infinite. But the topic here this morning is the Holy Spirit. What does he do? What, what, what does he do in the life of the person who has put faith in Christ? We've seen from verse 2 that he frees us from sin and death. That's one thing the Holy Spirit does. Really, this, from, from verse 2 all the way to almost verse 17-ish, a couple verses thereafter, this is like, what does the Holy Spirit do? What is he, what is he all about in the life of, of the believer? And it's critical that as we think about this, we define it from Scripture. We get our ideas from Scripture and not like Christian TV or pop Christian culture or whatever else, other errors there could be out there. He frees us from sin and death. Verse 3, we saw that he wants our eyes to be fixed on Christ and wants us to think about the cross and the gospel a lot. We saw from verse 4 that he, he helps us fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given to do what we never could do before salvation, and that is obey God from the heart. The Holy Spirit is the engine of obedience. And we do that not to earn salvation, 
but because God has given us salvation. And then in verse 5 and 6 and following last week, we saw he gives us a different nature. He gives us life and peace and changes us. And so verse 11, 9 through 11 now, big picture, 37,000 feet. Here's kind of what we're seeing as we ease in to this meaty, meaty section. First, these verses talk about change. They are not talking about change that you need to do in your life. Okay, there is stuff that we need to do as Christians. That's coming in chapter 12. This is just talking about, God's like, shelve that for a minute. Let me tell you about the change that I accomplish. Okay, second, these are realities that happen to every believer in Christ. These are not talking about things for like only the elite super Christians, but every Christian. Third, what is talked about here by the Holy Spirit, these are permanent and irreversible transformations that the Holy Spirit accomplishes. These are not things that, are, that God takes back and says, ha, just kidding. Fourth, these transformations talked about in verse 9 through 11 are, are accomplished only by the power of the Spirit. They're not accomplished by us, you know, like getting to a certain spiritual level or us finally like reading our Bibles enough, none of that. They're accomplished by the grace of the Spirit. Now you'll notice in this passage that there are lots of different terms for the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, there's three alone. Right? The, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Verse 11, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus. These are all synonyms for the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit. Why all the different terms? I think to emphasize the unity that the three persons of the Godhead has with each other. The unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That he's like working not in contradiction, but in conjunction with the Father and the Spirit. So for our outline, we're going we're gonna to cut. You know, verses 9 through 11 is really meaty. I mean, it's a thick section. If maybe you're newer to, to studying Romans this morning, maybe like me at times, you said, wow, what, what is happening here? I get that. Um, there's a lot to chew on in these three verses, so we're going to kind of cut it into some bite-sized pieces, five in particular. And so from verse 9 through 11, we're going to see five transformations that occur at regeneration. Five transformations that occur at regeneration or five transformations that occur at salvation by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is just kind of a, you know, a heady theological term. That, that, that transformation, that, that the salvation that the Holy Spirit accomplishes. Okay? Five transformations. Remember, regeneration just means, it's just that word that means what happens when you get saved. To, to become a Christian. To become a Christian, not on paper or culturally, but in reality before God in heaven. Now, speaking of transformation. Remember that in Romans, earlier in Romans, if you were with us, there's a transformation that occurs when the person puts faith in Christ called justification. Justification. That is the instant transformation where solely based on childlike trust in Jesus Christ, God transforms our standing with him. Where we are no longer guilty of sin, we are forgiven of sin. That's what justification means. 
All our sins considered punished in Christ, his righteousness given to us. That's the transformation of justification. It is a transformation in our position with God, but it doesn't transform our character and our nature. Okay? It, it, it'd, be like, it'd be like this. Say a, say a Mongolian guy moves to Iceland and he wants to become a citizen of Iceland. And he moves to, you know, Reykjavik or whatever, and through whatever process they have in Iceland, he's, he becomes a citizen. And he goes before the court and he says, okay, you've done what's necessary to become an Icelandic citizen. Boom, he hits the gavel down. You are now a citizen of Iceland. Right? That doesn't change this guy's character or his nature at all. It just changes his standing. That's justification. It changes our standing before God from guilty to no condemnation. However, what is talked about in verse 9 through 11 is a different kind of transformation, a transformation of nature, of your, the fabric of who you are. Not perfection, but transformation. It would be like if, not that this could happen, but it would be like if that Mongolian dude who became an Icelandic citizen, it would be like if also in that moment some crazy physiological miracle happened and he became Icelandic like 70% in his DNA. That is akin to the transformation that is being talked about in verse 9 through 11. Nature, fabric, not in our physical DNA, but in our spiritual DNA. This is what happens when a person becomes a Christian. Not perfect, but definitely transformed. So five transformations. Number one is this, the transformed nature. Number one, the transformed nature. This is found in verse nine. Your nature is transformed. Look there, verse nine. Romans chapter eight, the transformed nature, verse nine. However, he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. That word however at the beginning of verse nine, it's not throw away. It tells us, look, what I'm telling you now is way different than what you heard just before. What happened just before? Look at verse seven and eight. Paul is talking about the person who is not yet a believer, their nature. Verse seven, the mindset on the flesh, that's just another way to say the person who has not yet surrendered their life to Christ Regardless of what they think, this is the situation. They're hostile towards God. They do not subject themselves to the law of God. Right? In other words, they don't tenderly in their heart say, yeah, I want to obey God. For it's not even able to do so. They're not able to. And verse 8, those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. So, so those, those four, those are pretty dark realities describe like how I was before I became a believer in my mid-20s and how everyone is before they surrendered their life to Christ. They are, what theologians call here, recognize this as total depravity. As the text says right there, they're not able to please God. They do not subject themselves to God, meaning they're, not, they're unwilling and unable. Hostile. But... Notice, however, however, verse 9. In other words, change. Fantastic news. The person who has put faith in Christ is no longer unwilling and unable to please God. Total change. Why? Because they're not in the flesh anymore. They're in the spirit. They are not perfected. It's not that they're better than anybody. It's that God has accomplished a change in them. What tells us that? 
Again, verse 9, they are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. This is similar to what we saw in verse 5. This is not talking about behavior. Sometimes in Christianese, Christians will say, you know, if they're having a rough day, I'm in the flesh right now. Right? Meaning I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to obey the Lord today. I'm in the flesh. That is not what is happening here in verse 9. This is saying a change of nature. Like because the spirit is in you, you, you are in, in the realm of the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. You have new desires. They are not perfected. You have new desires for Christ, new desires for godliness, new desires, as you heard Cole say, like, I, I want to obey God now. New sensitivities, sensitive to your own sins, a new hunger for scripture because of the new nature. And then Paul, as a loving, faithful shepherd, he interjects this little phrase as he often does in scripture. Look back at verse nine and he says, okay, this is true of you if, if indeed condition upon the spirit of God dwelling in you. Right? In other words, this is only true if the Holy Spirit is in you, if you are saved. John Calvin writes that if is placed here so that the reader would be stirred to examine ourselves closely lest we should profess the name of Christ in vain or in emptiness. So the first transformation, transformation of nature. Number two, the transformed occupancy. The transformed occupancy. The second transformation the spirit accomplishes is a transformed occupancy. Verse 9. Look back there in verse 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. A little phrase, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. This implies that if the Spirit of God does dwell in you, right, you're a believer. We believers have, point being, a transformed occupancy. Occupancy describes like who is living in a place, who has taken up residency in a building or in a house. If we say, you know, this, this commercial building has a new occupancy, we mean that there are new residents, new inhabitants. The Christian is somebody who has a new occupant in the soul. What do you mean? God, the Holy Spirit, No, no, we do not become gods. That is a catastrophic error. Ever, no Christian ever becomes a god. However, we have God the Spirit indwelling in us individually. Look look at verse 9 and see if the Spirit of God dwells in you. That that, uh, original word translated dwell, remember the, the, the New Testament was given to us in first century Greek. That Greek word dwell it comes from a word that means house, and it's a verb form of the word house. So it carries the idea of to dwell in someone's house, taking up residency, occupy a house. Prior to salvation in Christ, no one is regenerate. No one has the Holy Spirit in them. However, once you are saved, it means the Spirit of the living God has housed himself in your soul. A settled residence. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's said of somebody, 
They'll say, yeah, well, that person's a Christian, but they've never submitted to Christ as Lord. They don't really walk with the Lord. You know, they're kind of this or that. And of course, this means they're only a Christian on paper. They're not actually going to heaven. They, ha- they haven't actually experienced the true transformation of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Spirit indwelling in them. God does not consider them a Christian yet. On the, by the authority of his word, we can say that. And they can become one, of course, by faith in Christ. But point being, the saved person is someone who has the Holy Spirit occupying their heart. A few things about this. Because there's been so much confusion and wrong teaching about this, especially in the last several decades. The Holy Spirit houses himself in every single believer. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and Galatians 4, 6. Every single Christian. There's no such thing as, you know, someone who, like, is an inferior Christian, and, well, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet, but hopefully they get him. Not at all. Ephesians 2.22, all regenerate people, all Christians, have the Holy Spirit. Second, about this, nothing is said here or anywhere in the text about needing more of the Spirit or extra baptisms or portions of the Spirit. That's a false teaching. The Holy Spirit is a person. You either have him indwelling you or you don't. And there is only one baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 teaches. The word baptized means immersed. We are immersed by the Holy Spirit once and for all at the moment of salvation by faith in Christ. Third, The verb tense of this word dwells here in verse 9. It implies a continual, unceasing state. Which means the Holy Spirit, like there's no revolving door in your soul with the Holy Spirit. He's not coming in and out. Right? The Holy Spirit isn't going to say, well, you know, I mean, this guy, you know, his his spiritual house today smells foul because he's sinning a little extra today. I'm out of here. You know, give me a call when, when you're doing better and you've cleaned up your act a little bit today. That never happens. He's precisely there to help us walk in obedience and sanctify us. He's permanently with us. Ephesians 4.30, he seals us for the day of redemption. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You are thinking, what about 1 Samuel 16.14, which says the Holy Spirit departed from Saul. And what about Psalm 5111, where David says, God, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. And some unfortunate contemporary evangelical songs which say, don't take your spirit from me. What about that? Well, that song is misled, unfortunately, but those passages in the Old Testament, here's what's happening. In the Old Testament, right, God's people operated under the Old Covenant prior to Christ's coming and resurrection. The Holy Spirit operated differently. He would come and go for certain tasks, like for kings and and other specific uh, needs. However, in the new covenant, which is what we live under since Christ has been resurrected, he is permanently with us. He does not come and go. Jesus said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's fantastic news. Christ, through his spirit, doesn't orphan his people. So the spirit indwells the believer permanently. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know, speaking to believers, that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? In the Old Testament, if someone were to say, where's the Holy Spirit? Right? They, they might point to a king or to Elijah the prophet or to the temple. But now, where's the Holy Spirit? They point to a regenerate believer. Incredible truth. Of course, end of verse 9, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. Very simple. If you do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling in your heart, you are not a Christian, you're not yet saved, you're not yet going to heaven, and you can by bowing the knee in faith to Christ. So, a Christian is not someone who decides one day, you know, I, I, I want to I kind of paint up my life a little bit and get more moral. Uh, I want to vote different. I need a moral adjustment. I want a new religion. That is not what it means to be a Christian. It's when the Holy Spirit lands in your heart and turns the lights on for the very first time and that permanently. Number three, the third transformation. Third transformation the Spirit accomplishes, the transformed ownership. A transformed ownership also found in verse 9. There's a transformed ownership when you become a Christian. Look there. End of verse 9, he says, If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Look at that last phrase. He does not, he, the person without the Spirit, does not belong to him, Christ. Belong, a term of ownership, This would also imply if a person does have the Holy Spirit, you do belong to Christ. To have the Holy Spirit is to belong to Christ. The the Spirit is a mark of ownership. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that the Spirit is a seal. Right? Not the ocean animal. The seal of the believer That Greek word there in ancient times, it spoke of someone marking something out of great value as owning them. And and that's, that's a wonderful truth. One reason God gives the Holy Spirit to the believer is to say, you're mine now. I own you. You're not your own. You're not the devil's anymore like you used to be, even though you might have had some painted up morality on the external part of your life. You're God's, and there's no better person to be owned by than Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He alone who conquered death and conquered sin and is the merciful, compassionate High Savior. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Salvation is not you checking a new religious box in the survey. It's God from heaven. It's Jesus Christ, the Lord of all the earth, saying, you are mine now. 
I paid a dear price for you on the cross. And I give you the seal of authentication by the Spirit. Not how well you're doing in a given day. Not how good things are between you and the wife. Because frankly, they, we can struggle a lot of times. It's not the seal of ownership. The seal of ownership is the Holy Spirit in your heart. Given by Jesus Christ who paid a dear price for you. His very life. His blood shed. Spirit transforms our ownership. Number four, the fourth transformation in the text here in verse 10, the transformed spiritual life. Number four, the transformed spiritual life. The spirit, when he comes into your life, that's not an inert thing. He is not inert. He causes something to happen. Not perfection. Please hear me. If you're kind of newer to, to Bible teaching or the Christian thing this morning, emphatically what the Bible does not say and what we are not saying is that, well, the Christian is someone who becomes perfect and better than anyone far from that. Just sinners saved by grace. As Cole said, and more importantly, as the Bible says. Nevertheless, the Spirit does cause a transformation. Look at verse 10. But if, this, if Christ is in you, in other words, if the Holy Spirit is in you through him, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So if Christ is in you, and the Holy Spirit being in us is the same idea as Christ in us because Christ and the Spirit are united. Right? If that's true, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit's alive. I want to just park on that phrase, though the body is dead because of sin, really quick. What's Paul saying here? He's not saying that we're physically dead. He is acknowledging that our physical bodies are heading towards death. Newsflash, the death rate is one per person, right? We're all decaying. We're all headed towards death. A Christian will die a physical death just like a non-Christian. Why is that? Look at verse 10. The body is dead... In other words, physically, it's for all practical purposes. You may be breathing, but you're going to be dead soon because of sin. The Christian believer is cleansed of their sin. They're released from the, the penalty of sin, right? Eternal death. But they're not released from the physical consequences of it, which is death. The fact that we'll experience physical day and, and death says we sin. The guy who says, well, I never sin. Now, first of all, you could ask his wife. <laughs> She'd chuckle. Yeah, you're right. But more importantly, the fact that that guy is going to die one day and he has back pain and other ailments, that shows he has sin. You know, the, the, the biochemistry of aging is a very complex field scientifically. Gerontologists, they're called. And scientists, they, they wrestle and study with what causes aging. It's an area of major interest. There was a paper put out in two, 2016 by the National Center for Biotechnology. And in that paper, it was interesting, they compiled data and they said currently, this is 2016, currently there are 300 different theories for why people age and die. 300. It's certainly good to study the biochemistry of this, but we know from Scripture 
The ultimate reason you die and we die is because of sin. This is the reason. Genesis 2.17, God said in the very beginning, look, if, 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 you, if you, like, you think you got a better idea than worshiping me and obeying me, this thing that you don't know about yet called death is going to body slam you to the ground and pin you and you're not going to get out from underneath it. We all die because there's still sin clinging around in us. However, the great news is the Holy Spirit makes from the inside our soul alive. Look back at verse 10. Yet, the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Not because you are so righteous. He's bringing in there the righteousness of justification. Right? You're declared righteous, not by your works, but Christ. Because of that, the spirit's alive. Which is a reminder here, beloved, those of you who are in Christ, before Christ, we were not spiritually alive. We were not spiritually, like, even on life, on life supports. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we've got to remember two things as we walk around in this world. Number one, the reason you're, like, your lost coworker or family member or the world is not interested in Christ and not interested in his word isn't because some like apples and some like oranges. That's not the reason. The reason is because they are dead spiritually. They are not alive spiritually. They are spiritual corpses walking around. This is the only reason why. And then the second thing we got to remember is If you're saved prior to Christ, we're no better. We too were spiritual corpses and we had plenty of evidence in our lives. The pride in our hearts was spiritual death. The self-worship that we were enslaved to before salvation. Self-exaltation, high-mindedness, putting ourselves above people. That's one of the greatest evidences of spiritual death. Boasting, self-praise. But... God being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. The body is heading to death, breaking down. And for those of you who are like younger than 40s and younger than 50s, you may not feel this yet, but we do and you will. But the spirit, body going this way, spirit's going this way. For those of you who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.16, your spirit's being renewed day by day. Praise God for that. You're alive. And fifth and finally, the fifth transformation accomplished by the Holy Spirit in regeneration is a transformed future. A transformed future. This is found in verse 11. The transformed future. This is the package deal here. Right? That the Holy Spirit dishes out through the doorway of Jesus Christ, the transformed future. Look at verse 11. But, again, Paul likes that if, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is fantastic news. Three things at least we need to see in this verse quickly because we're out of time almost. Number one, the Holy Spirit was the power in the engine behind Christ's bodily resurrection. 
right? Sometimes when some of you guys, you, you, you're rehabbing a car, right? You get the frame, you get, or you get the drivetrain, other things you get, and then you put a new engine, and then that thing's ready to go. The Holy Spirit was the engine which launched Christ out of the grave. He came out of the grave bodily. He was beaten that day of his crucifixion. He was whipped with a bone and a metal studded whipped. He lost a catastrophic amount of blood. He was nailed to a cross of splintery wood for our sins. And he died a real death. But then by the power of the spirit, that was like reversed big time. You know, heart, lungs, blood, whatever else, neurons, he launched out of the grave. The power behind that was the spirit. Romans 1.4, he was declared the son of God with the power the power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit. Second thing to notice, that same spirit, verse 11 tells us, that houses, that, that raised Christ houses every believer. Sometimes we might think, well, I mean, he hasn't fixed my, you know, my hurt toe or my sore back. Well, what's going on here? He will one day. Cross first, crown second. There's an order of things. The third thing to notice, he'll give life to your mortal bodies. Look there, end of verse 11. He who raised Christ will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Mortal, it means something that's dying physically. Your body is dying. So the Holy Spirit transforms the believer in the present, right? New nature, new occupancy, new ownership, new spiritual life. And the Holy Spirit is going to transform the believer in the future. Resurrection. You mean to tell me, like, the, the Christian, someone who's going to rise from the dead in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. 110%. More absolutely sure than you'll walk out of this room today. Jesus is going to come back, and exactly how verse 11 says, he will cause your dead body in the ground to come bursting out. Scriptures talk so much about this. Do you have illnesses that you battle? Old sports injuries. Have you had to shed tears at a funeral before of someone who was taken too, way too early? Catastrophic injuries. Have you had to just bear that un- unspeakable pain that is terrible and unbearable? One day, if you would receive Christ as your Savior and just put faith in him, one day those things will be done with, forever gone, an expiration on all of them. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. In John Bunyan's epic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it, you know how it ends, the second most selling book in history. At the end of it, Christian and Hopeful, right? They're, they're, it's, a, it's a story, it's an allegory of, of the Christian life and the difficulties. And the last thing they have to do is die and go to heaven or the celestial city. And remember, they have to cross the dark river, right? The river of death. And Christian's like, I don't know, man, that river looks terrifying. And so they, he and Hopeful, Hopeful's encouraging him, they go into the river and Christian starts to panic it's symbolic of death and the treacheries and the brutality of death itself. And he says, hopeful, I, I feel like I'm lost, right? He's feeling like God has abandoned him. 
He can't touch the bottom anymore. He feels overwhelmed. And in a second, he all of a sudden says, wait, I feel a step under my foot. And another step and another step. And he starts walking. And it gets shallower. And then John Bunyan masterfully writes, quote, they therefore went up with much agility and speed, though the foundation upon which the celestial city was framed was higher than the clouds. They therefore went up through the regions of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they safely got over the river and had such glorious companions to attend them, the angels. And so will your future be if you have simply fallen on Jesus Christ by faith. They were struggling and wrestling and life was hard. And they were sad by all the terrible things that happen in this life and people that are lost and sins that face us. But they cross the river and it's like they're like surprised just how fast they were able to run up past the clouds, a mountain higher than the very sky. That is a picture of a reality. This isn't games. This isn't false talk to make us feel better today. You know, religions, the opium of the masses, all that garbage. Nietzsche, he wished he never would have said that. He wishes other things too. This is a reality that, that will come to every believer who before they die just says, Lord, I can't do this. I can't save myself. I've failed your law. I need forgiveness. And cries out to Jesus Christ by faith alone. Because Romans 10.13 says, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want us to be encouraged this morning, beloved. Be encouraged. Two important so what's about all this. So what, number one? Self-examination. So what, number one? Just before we get in the grind tomorrow and Monday and everything else that we got to do, self-examination. You noticed often in this passage, Paul is saying, if the Spirit of God indwells you, if you are indwelt by the Spirit, he's saying that because he loves the reader. He loves you. He wants us to push pause and say, am I saved? And he says this later in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Again, speaking of the Spirit. Unless indeed you fail the test. So I ask you here this morning, are you indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Which is to say, have you bowed your knee to Jesus Christ and received his free love so that you can be transformed you can have the certainty of exiting this life, which you will and I will soon, safely exiting, safely entering into eternity. You do not want to exit this life and enter the next apart from Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. Examine yourself, beloved. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you put faith in him? Have you come all the way to Christ, not just on paper, but through your heart and a childlike faith? He receives sinners. He receives anybody by simple faith. Examine yourself. And number two, encouragement. Second, so what? Encouragement. Be encouraged. 
once you have put your faith in Christ. Be encouraged. Why? Because as believers, we often say, man, I struggle quite a bit. I, I said this to my wife. I, did, I said this to my kids. I struggled with this. I was a bad witness at work. Whatever. That's true. That is discouraging. But here from this text, God wants the believer to fix their eyes on these great transformations, four that are in the present, one that's in the future, and be encouraged. He says, yes, I know you struggle. I know Romans 7, we talked about that. But these are realities that I have accomplished, God says. You have a new owner. You have a new occupancy and a new nature. A new life and a new future. Sometimes, sometimes we can think, well, the Holy Spirit's only valuable by how, because of how well I'm behaving today with the kids or at work or with the wife. That's the wrong way to think about the Spirit. It's to think, God owns me. God is with me. God will never leave me. I'm his and my future is secure. And so as much as we think about like how oh, I did this or I'm discouraged, we also need to think about being encouraged that he's with us and the spirit will never leave us. And think about I can face the day by God's grace, not some empty psychobabble self-talk, but because of a spiritual reality that he's with us and never going to leave us. And he indwells us. Martin Lloyd-Jones concludes this way. He said, oh, the privilege of being a Christian. Can you imagine anything higher or greater? We are not only in Christ, Christ is in us. There is nothing in God's universe comparable. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your love. These, these great transformations, four current, one future, we can never earn these by being nice or moral enough. We're condemned on our own, Lord. We know that. But thank you, Father, that you give these freely to the believer in Christ who simply says, God, I, I could never save myself. I've sinned. I've failed. Would you forgive me? Would you save me? Would you transform me? Holy Spirit, would you come into my life? And when the Spirit does, these are, these are realities. This happens. So, Father, for anyone who has not come all the way to Jesus Christ today, I pray that they would not start the week without doing so. So as to have new life and be transformed. And for those of us who have, would you give us strength to face the week with all the battles, the sorrows, the hard stuff that, that's going to happen, the things that are nagging on us uh, in this life that's often disappointing. Father, give us strength. Give us strength by your spirit to have joy and to have hope. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.